Okay, and we're ready to go again. Let me see if I can... I'm going to turn that off for just a minute so you can actually see the picture a little bit better. This one didn't show up very good. Um, I'll start with that. I think that's a little bit better we can see. Looks better. Okay. Uh, so the picture of the day for today. And if you noticed, I don't know if you noticed the last time, but they actually hadn't changed the year yet. As of, a couple, as of yesterday, they had not changed. They finally switched it. It's now actually 2012, not 2011. But this picture taken from Ireland is a picture of the constellation of Orion. Might be one of the ones that you're actually familiar with, one of the ones that usually people have actually seen. So if you go out in the evening sky actually right now, this is sort of what you, this is what you would see in the evening sky. Orion is a very prominent winter constellation in the evening, so I suggest if it's clear tonight, tomorrow, I know what the weather's like in January in this part of the country, you might have to wait a week before you can actually get to do it. Go out and take a look and see if you can see this pattern you won't see near as much detail. You see a lot more stars in this for a couple of reasons. First of all, probably a darker sight than we have right around here. And secondly, taken with the camera, it's a lot, it can expose for a lot longer time. So it can actually pick up fainter stars than you'd be able to see with the naked eye. But what, a couple things you do notice, you notice the outline of the body of Orion is the hunter. So there's four stars that outline the body, body a nice reddish tinged star here and a bluer star here. Those are correct. Those are the colors of those stars. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, that the color of the star is actually telling you the temperature. So it's telling us that this star, which happens to be Betelgeuse, one of the bright stars in the constellation of Orion, is a very cool star. Red stars are very cool. About 3,000 degrees, about half the temperature of our sun. As comparison, this blue star here is called Rigel. And one of the other, those are the two brightest stars in the constellation, it does look very blue. So it is actually a much hotter star, two or three times hotter than our sun. So you see a big range in temperatures, and that's not even the hottest star. There are stars that can go up and be almost ten times as hot as our sun. So a big range in temperatures that you can see, again, just by looking at this constellation. The other thing that we see in it, and you probably noticed, you said that's the body of Orion the Hunter. There's three stars which are also distinctive, which you see is the belt, and then the Orion sword is hanging down from the belt. And if you look at that one, the middle star in the sword, it's actually a little fuzzy. It's got a little pinkish, reddish tinge to it. That's different than the reddish that I mentioned in Betelgeuse. That pink part of the, of the star, that's actually not a star. So that object you're looking at there really isn't a star. It's actually a nebula. And this is called the Orion Nebula and is a region where stars are currently forming. Again, something we'll talk about in another month or so when we start to get to stars. We'll talk about what star formation region is, but you can actually see that with the naked eye. It won't look like a nice, beautiful nebula as you see in the pictures in the textbook, but you, will, you, can, you can actually see it. So when you see that, that sword, you'll see three stars here. You should see three here. That part of the outline you'll be able to see even from this area. You, know, you won't see all this fine detail. But you can actually see that Orion, you can actually see the Orion Nebula. And there are pictures of it a little more detailed in your textbook. So, questions, picture of the day. No? We're ready to go. Okay. Um, I have a couple things. I'll turn the light back on here for you so you can actually see. A couple of things before I get started on everything else today. Uh, just a reminder, if you've done the extra credit assignment, I have put the 10 points in D2L for you. It should show up in your grades there. If you go in and you don't see it, let me know. 
and I'll make sure I double checked it or send me another email. If you haven't gotten that done, go ahead and email it to me today if you're planning on doing it. We've got about, say about two-thirds to three-quarters of the class have, have emailed it to me. So if you want to do it still, you still have a chance, get it to me today for subscribing to the podcast. Homework, again, originally was due the 20th. It's now due the 24th because it covers chapters 0 and 1, which we're still finishing up. So I wanted to give you a little bit of extra time, and that way by the 24th I'll have covered everything in chapter 1. And again, it's due, at the end, it's due by the end of the day, so if you choose to email it to me, that's fine. If you do go into D2L, you'll find quiz number 1 is there, but you can't take it yet. So it's there. You'll be able to see that it's actually there now, but it won't be available until the 23rd. That's 12 questions on chapters 0 and 1, and you can take it any time during that week. So you have from early morning on the Monday, the 23rd. I think it starts at like 12.30 in the morning, so if you really want to stay up late on Sunday night and take it and get it out of the way, you're welcome to. And you have through the following Sunday night at about 11.30. And then I know, exam one already. We just started, right? Tentatively scheduled for the 31st. I do like to get, the, again, I want to get that in before the last drop deadline. So your last chance to drop is the first. If we take the exam on the 31st, I'm usually very, very quick on grading those. So if we take it here and finish it like 12 o'clock, you'll probably have grades by early afternoon. So at least you'll have seen an exam and you'll have see a grade for it, even if you haven't gotten the graded exam back yet, and you have a chance to you know, make a last decision if you want to get out. You know, don't bail, it's good, but you know, if you need to, if you feel that bad about it at that point, if you're struggling and you want to get out, that's your last chance to get any money back. So after the first, then you're, you, know, you can drop and you might get a W, but you're, you're not getting any money back. And then quiz two is not yet up there, but will be available the following week. I've also put up there a sample quiz. So if you have not done an online quiz before and you want to go in and take one, there's a sample quiz in there. I've set up, you can go in, it's just a bunch of random astronomy questions from early chapters. You can go take a look at it. Don't worry about trying to get them right. It's not graded, but if you just want to go click on it, you can go take it up to 10 times, which is the maximum D2L would let me set it to do. So you can go in there and take it and take it again. And if you just want practice as to what the quiz is going to look like, you can do that. So questions on assignments. Okay. One more thing then before we actually get started. Sorry, a lot of announcements today. Um, one thing that's, that's going on that, um, if you looked at my podcast, I don't know how many have actually looked at them and downloaded, but Apple has also started another big project which was just announced today. And if you actually go on to iTunes U today, there are now entire courses that you can get. So you can actually download an entire course. This was just, their announcement started at 10 o'clock and I noticed this was now up on their website, so I figure we're free to talk, free to actually talk about it now. But Hack has actually been included in this. There's a number of math classes and this class. So Astronomy 104 is actually one of the classes that you can download an entire class there. So there are homework assignments, there are sample quizzes and things that you may want to use as, you know, and supplemental materials that you can all access right through here. So it's an app that you can download. It's an app you have to download through, uh, you have to have an iPod Touch or an iPhone or an iPad. And you can actually download, say, this entire course plus about four or five different math courses that are available. So we're actually in here, and there is actually 
there's actually this course. So there's actually a ton, a lot of material in there. Homeworks aren't exactly the same as the ones you get. There might be some similarities, but some of the assignments are there, lectures, and some supplemental materials that you may want to take a look at. So if you have access to one of those and want to try downloading the app, you're welcome to you know, give it a try. But this was just, just announced this morning that they've actually released it. So something we've been working on since August right now. So but to get your, bring that to your attention if you want to try to use it. There's about 100 and I've got about 120 different materials in there that you can that you can use and download. And when you pull it into the entire course, I can't do that on here. You can actually page through things and attach and videos are embedded right in it, so it should pull right up directly to videos and audio links like for the podcast. So, just something new that actually does apply right to this course. Okay. Questions? No. Okay. On to, on, to class, on to class then. So we were almost done with chapter zero last time. In fact, we were very, very close to the end. So, oh, so I decided to go start from the beginning, don't I? Okay. Let's try again. Since we're already done, we'll go start and we'll do chapter zero all over again. Here we go. From current slide. All right. So we had talked previously, we'd gone through a lot of the basics of astronomy. We talked about the sky, we talked about how the sun appears to move in the sky, how the moon appears to move in the sky, um, the eclipses, we've talked about a lot of different things like that, and we finished up talking about measuring distances. And the last unit of chapter, of chapter zero actually is, talks about science, and science and how, what is the scientific method and what do we mean by a scientific theory. And scientific theories can be a number of different things. Um, the biggest thing is that they have to have certain properties to them. A good scientific theory has to be something that you can test. There has to be a test that you can do. So a good scientific theory could be that the moon is made of green cheese, right? Is it something we can go test? Yes, we've been to the moon, we could, we've taken ships there, we've gone there, you know, we could it's something we could test. So that could be a good scientific theory. Doesn't mean it's right. But it, is, it, still could be a, it could still be a reasonable scientific theory because you could test it. And you could go there and take your bite of a moon rock and lose a teeth or two, a tooth or two, and find out that, well, guess what? My theory was wrong and I've got to go and revise my theory. And they also must be continually tested. Even when a theory is proven wrong or found to be wrong, it's not necessarily a bad theory. Uh, we will talk about, this time or next time, we'll talk about Newton's law of gravity. Newton's law of gravity is wrong. It doesn't work it, all the time. It works in some cases, but it's not the perfect, it's not the exact law of gravity. It's not how things actually work. That doesn't mean we still won't use it. It still works for almost everything we do in everyday life and even everything we do in astronomy. But theories are constantly changed and constantly modified. And we now know that you know, Einstein came up with a better theory of gravity than Newton. But in terms of understanding, it's a lot easier for us to understand Newton's law of gravity. It's a, little, it's a lot simpler, significantly simpler, than trying to go through all the complexities of general relativity. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the course. We will go through some general relativity. But in terms of gravity, it's a lot easier to talk about that. The other ideas, and we'll see some of this when we start talking in the next chapter about the planets, is that you're looking for simple and elegant theories. You don't want to make your theory that's going to, that works, but you don't want to have it have so many complications in it that it's too difficult. That doesn't mean it's necessarily easily understand. I said Einstein's theory of relativity is not one we can just jump into in this class. 
you need another background for it. It doesn't mean it's not still a simple way over conceptually. Mathematically, it's way up here, but conceptually, you can actually think about it, and it is a relatively simple theory. And then finally, mentioned down on the bottom there, we can prove a scientific theory wrong. So we can find an example where a scientific theory doesn't work. But you can never prove one completely right. That's right, said. You can never prove it completely right. So we'll find out that you can make that example. You know, you can say the moon is made up of green cheese, and you can go prove that wrong, but you can't prove anything completely right. Question? Oh, is it locked? Is it locked? I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Didn't know it was locked today. Okay, I guess it is. All right. Sorry about that. Thank you. So we can never prove it completely right. We can. We can show that it works, that it might work, and all a theory to explain how the planets move. That's what we're going to talk about in a little bit. We can prove, we can show that it's right and show that it's right, but there's always another thing, always something else to test, and the theories are constantly being refined. So the way, in general, how the scientific method works is we make some sort of observation. Something has, you see something happen. Something may happen every day. The sun rises in the east. You know, we see it every single day, just some fa- fact. We know that's the case. Why it happens is a good question. But we see that it happens every single day. Then we make some sort of theory that leads to predictions. So the theory could be that the sun is ro- revolving around the Earth. Again, it's a reasonable scientific theory, and it fits the predictions. We know now that it's wrong, but it makes perfect sense if, you're, if all you're doing is sitting there every day while well, the sun is rising in the east and setting. We can make a model that says that's exactly what it's going to do. But then a good scientific theory will also make new predictions. So we'll make new predictions. So it may predict something that, okay, on this day the sun should rise at, at a certain point. So we have it exactly set and tomorrow the sun should rise exactly here. We can go look, does that really happen or not? If they agree, that's great. It doesn't prove our theory right, but it gives us another piece of evidence for it, that we're on the right track. If they don't agree, that's great too. You know, Even if your theory isn't, is wrong, you find out that it's wrong, then you can go work on something, you can go to the next step and say, okay, how do I modify my theory to get the right, to get the right to match the observation? How can I modify that theory a little bit? And it's just a continuous cycle. So science will never, will never change. The theory of gravity, we use general relativity right now. And who's to say you come back in 100 years and it'll be, well, general relativity works fine in most cases, but it doesn't work in this case. So then there's a bigger theory that actually takes that into effect, the way general relativity took over from Newton's gravity. And again, you can make a new theory. You don't necessarily have to throw out your whole theory. It may just be a little modification to it. It depends on the extent of the observations. So now we're done with chapter zero. We almost made it, almost made it last time. Let me just go over the quick summary. And again, these are just the things we talked about last time. We talked about just defining what astronomy was as the study of the universe, so study of everything in the universe. We talked about the celestial sphere. So everything looks like it's on that big sphere of stars around the, around the Earth. And that's very good for trying to describe the locations in the, in the sky. We can tell where everything is on the celestial sphere. I can give you coordinates 
and say, there it is, just as we can give latitude and longitude on the Earth. The Earth's orbit, there's the plane of the Earth's orbit is called the ecliptic. That's the path that the, the sun seems to follow in the sky. Or if you're at the sun, it's the path the Earth seems to, seems to follow. And it's tilted. It's tilted at that 23 and a half degree tilt that causes the seasons. So that tilt is what causes the seasons. And if you remember, we talked about seasons. We said there were two things that caused the seasons to occur. The tilt was the, re was the basic reason, but the tilt made the sunlight be more direct in the summer, so it concentrates it in a much smaller area and heats things up. And it gives you a longer day. We know right now, sun rises late, later in the morning and sets earlier in the evening than it's going to in July. So when the sun is up for a shorter time, it doesn't have as much time to heat up the ground, so it never gets quite as hot. We talked about the moon. The moon shines by reflected light, so the moon does not produce its own light, unlike the sun, and has phases. And we went through and looked a little bit about the phases last time. So you had the crescent phases, the real thin crescent phases, which is where the moon is right now. If you happen to look at it, if you were up bright and early this morning, before sunrise, there was a very thin crescent moon off over in the east. And it'll get thinner and thinner over the next couple of days and disappear. And if you come back in about three, four days from now, you'll probably see a very thin crescent moon right after sunset in the early evening. We talked about the different days, different months, different years. There's a solar day, that's what we use, that's the 24 hours. And there's a sidereal day, that's the 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's how long it takes the, sun to, the Earth to spin once. And because the Earth is revolving around the Sun at the same time that it's rotating, they don't match up. And there's that four minute difference. So the Earth really only takes 23 hours and 50 minutes to spin once, but 24 hours is actually the day because we've moved around the Sun at the same time. And then finally, we did the same thing with the months and the years. The synodic month, the month of the phases, is about 29 and a half days. The sidereal month of the, for the moon, how long it takes the moon to orbit the Earth once, about two days less than that, a little over 27 days. Again, that's due to the Earth moving around the sun. We move around the sun, so it takes a little bit of extra time. So the months are like that. The years, there is a tropical year, which we use, and there's a sidereal year relative to the stars. They're not exactly the same. They're slightly different. and all due to that precession, that wobble of the Earth's axis. We ended up, we ended up last time we, talk, we ended up talking about distances and eclipses. Distances, again, we've talked about parallax. Parallax is just measuring the shift of the shift of the stars. So the stars appeared to move, the nearby star appeared to move when compared against the distant stars as the Earth moved around the Sun. So it would appear to be in a different position each time and was therefore that angle we could actually measure. And we looked at that the last time. And then finally, eclipses we talked about, they're very rare. You know, we, have, we, had a nice, we had a nice lunar eclipse last month, if you happen to be in the west part of the United States. If you're over here, you're out of luck. There is a solar eclipse. Is it coming up this year? I think it's this year. I think there's one this year that, if, again, if you're in the western part of the US, there's actually going to be part, a, partial, a partial or an annular eclipse that's going to be visible there but not going to be visible this far east, so you've got to get further west right now. There's some coming up eventually. In a couple of years, we've got a few. 
but they don't occur all the time because the orbits are not exactly the same. We're not all lined up exactly. So sometimes the moon's a little bit too high or a little bit too low to form that. And then finally, what we just did today, scientific method. It's just a cycle. You observe something. Something happens. You make a prediction, form a theory, form a theory, make a prediction, and observe it again. And you keep doing that in a cycle, and you keep refining your theory until it fits all of the observations that you see. So any questions on chapter 0? And we can get on to chapter 1. No? No? OK. Let's go on to chapter 1 then. Oops. There it is. Chapter 1. Chapter 1 is titled The Copernican Revolution. So it's sort of a change in our understanding of how, of how the universe, how the solar system worked. And talked about in the last chapter how you know, everything looks like it's orbiting the Earth. Right? That's not wrong. It's not a wrong theory for the time. It made perfect sense at the time. Everything looks like if you're sitting here on Earth, we don't feel us moving. You know, we're moving many thousands and tens of thousands of miles per hour through space, but we don't, feel, we don't feel any of it. So it really looks like everything else is moving around us. Copernicus was one of the first to come up with the idea, to, to suggest the idea that it might be a better way if the Earth was actually moving and the Sun was at the center of everything. So starting off with a little picture here, sort of getting the idea of science, any ideas what that might be? It's not, yeah. Do you know what? Very good. That's correct. That is correct. That is the Large Hadron Collider. So that's actually a particle collider. And if you look down here, you can actually get an idea of the size. There's a couple people standing down here in the hard hats down at the bottom. So you can get an idea of the tremendous size of this. Now, more of it's just a picture relating to science, but the idea is that this Hadron Collider can reproduce conditions that have not existed since the very early stages of the universe, as in the first few seconds. So conditions that we cannot study elsewhere, we don't see anywhere in, elsewhere in the universe. We don't see them in stars, we don't see them in galaxies, you don't see them near black holes. The only place they existed was in the very early stages of the universe when the universe was very extremely hot and extremely dense. And that's the type of things that this can do and help us understanding not just the particles, but help us understanding in the early universe. So, not directly Copernicus, just the kind of the science behind, kind of this part of the idea of the science and the scientific methods that we've been talking about. Now, what I'm going to talk about in chapter one, give you the quick outline here. I've added in one, I've put in a little bit on ancient astronomy. Your textbook is very lax on that. It kind of jumps right, almost right to it. Rarely mentions some of the early, barely mentions some of the early Greek astronomy and the medieval astronomy, which is where everything started to change. So I had a little bit in there on ancient astronomy just because I think you should see a little bit of it in terms of actually taking an astronomy course. Then most of what we'll talk about is on the motions of the planets, how the planets move. That was a very confusing thing for people thousands of years ago. You know, we watched everything. I said we watched the sky. The, the celestial sphere turned. Right? And everything seemed to rise in the east and set in the west. The planets did too, but when you watch the planets carefully, they actually moved slowly among the stars. So whereas the constellation Orion was always the same, those stars were in that same pattern, 
And if you came back the next year, the next month, 10 years later, 20, they were always the same. But when you, came, when you watched the planets, the planets changed positions. So they'd actually be the planet, you know, Jupiter might be in the constellation of Leo right now, but you come back a year later and now it's in Virgo and you come back a year, it's changing. So they're actually wandering through the stars, how they got their name planets as wanderers. The birth of modern astronomy is Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler, some astronomers that we'll talk about from the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s that really led the foundation for how we understand the motions today. And that led us into the laws of planetary motion. And finally, all of that built upon by Newton to give us Newton's law of gravity that we'll talk about how Newton described the laws of motion of objects and how he described gra gra how gravity worked under his description. So let's start off with ancient astronomy. Again, going back a little bit over what your book didn't, doesn't, really, doesn't really get into a lot. But astronomy's been around forever. Okay. You know, thousands of years ago, what, you didn't, have, you didn't have an iPod, you didn't have an iPad, you didn't have you know, TV or this or that to go do, to do, anything, do anything else. So people would look at the stars. And actually, if you can go back thousands of years, and there are many monuments, Stonehenge is a big one that you probably heard of, as one of the best known. But many thousands of years old, and we find now that there is astronomical significance in these. Astronomical si significance meaning that certain things in them line up on certain key astronomical days of the year. Key astronomical days might be the first day of spring, the first day of summer, the first day of winter. You know, certain the solstices and the equinoxes we mentioned last time, those are key days in the astronomical calendar and are very important for, especially were used a long time ago for in terms of timing. You know, you needed to know when, when was spring coming, when was it going to be time to plant. We didn't have the technology we do today, but you could use these sort of things such as Stonehenge could be used to say, okay, when the sun rises in a certain point as seen from this monument, or shining down a certain, um, a certain you know, tube in a, in a pyramid, then it actually tells you, okay, that's time. It's now the first day of spring, it's the first day of summer, and we know exactly, we know it's time to be planting this or what time it is to plant certain crops. Now Stonehenge is probably one you've heard of. Stonehenge is really one of the better known objects. That's located in England and it's a, a big circle of stones. Stonehenge, big circle of stones. And got a little picture, of, a little diagram of it here. But it's a whole set of stone, I mean tremendous stone, not little tiny stones, great big ones if you ever had the chance to go visit it. It's a tremendous circle of stones. But what happens is that if you stand right at the center of this, so you stand at the center of the monument and on the first day of summer you watch the sun rise and it rises right over what's called the heel stone there. So, took quite a lot of observation to get this set up. Yes sir? It's that little one way in the back, yeah, way in the back there. That's called the heel stone. And if you're standing at the middle, the only day this will happen is the first day of summer. That's as far when the sun is rising at its furthest to the north in the sky. And on that first day of summer, it'll rise just over this heel stone. If you come back a week later, it won't. It'll be moving, it'll be moving further away from it. It's called H-E-E-L, right? Yes. Yes. 
so we see that. But that's not the only one that's been found. As you look at the little diagram here on the other side, there's also, it also aligns with certain areas show you where the moon rises furthest to the north and south at the winter solstice here. And from looking from other points here, you can find the most southern, you can find it's all different alignments that actually happen to line up with different astronomical events. And usually with the extremes, because that's as far as the moon would go. So for example, the furthest, the most northerly moonrise would have been here, the most southerly would be here. And you have that range. The moon is going to rise somewhere in that range, and you know the two extremes. And you could use that in part for calendars in terms of determining eclipses. Eclipses were again an important thing to know thousands of years ago. If you were the, um, the astronomer, astrologer, no difference at the time. Astronomers and astrologers were one and the same. Even back to the 15, 1600s, you know, the, the court astronomer was also the one who cast the horoscopes. But if you didn't predict the eclipse, the sun just disappeared. Remember we talked about that last time. The sun just disappeared for seven or eight minutes. So, and that's your job to, to have been able to predict that. You might want to run away, right? Get away before you lose your head, or however it would have been at the time. So it was very important to have good calendars to be able to predict events like that. Because not only were you in trouble, I mean, the king wouldn't have been happy with you, but also nobody's going to be happy with him for not knowing that the sun was going to disappear, was going to disappear. Whereas if you could predict it, then that makes you look so much better, right? You know, the sun's going to disappear on this day for nine minutes, and you know, when you predict it and it happens, you know, then, then it looks great. But there are, this is not the only monument. There are a lot of them. I've just given you one here just as an example. When I say Stonehenge is just one you've usually heard about. But I like you to have seen some of this, at least a little bit of it, in terms of the course. Now, one of the big problems with them, and you know, most of this was found later. You know, even a few hundred years ago, it wasn't known exactly what the alignment of Stonehenge meant. Mainly because these were created many thousands of years ago. So there's, there's no written documents. You know, they didn't leave us a manual here how to, how to, how to use Stonehenge. You know, so and so, big tablets that said, you know, you'd look at this date and then it's going to be something. There's no documents. It's only stuff that we found, only that we found through observation. That's people standing there at Stonehenge trying to figure out what's going on. Notice that, you know, on the first day of summer that this happened, if you happen to be here, that, it, that this is where the sun rose. So we have no documentation. We have only these monuments and we try to figure out what's going on with them. The earliest written records were the Greek records. So we actually have from you know, several thousand years ago, we have records left by the Greeks as early astronomical records. And even a lot of those have been were destroyed. So we have a little bit in terms of the Greek. A lot of it was destroyed in Egypt when the Great Library was burned. So a lot of the material that existed at the time, that knowledge is gone, except for bits and pieces that happened to have been salvaged by the Arab astronomers who had them and who kept them and translated them. And then they were re-recovered again and translated back to our languages that we could understand. Now the Greeks did, thing a little, did things a little bit differently. Aristotle's probably one you've heard of in terms of one of the Greeks, one of the very early scienti scientists in a way, more of a philosopher than a scientist. He didn't, scientist you think now is experimenting. Aristotle wasn't an experimenter. He didn't need to experiment. He, you, you knew things. You did it all, it was all in your head. 
you know, this is how things should be and based on our assumptions that this is how everything is, we can make our model of the, of the universe. So, one of the assumptions was, you know, we didn't have to prove it, didn't have to prove that everything went around the Earth, it's obvious. We're sitting here on Earth, we're not moving, everything is going around us. So there was no attempt to, you know, prove that the geocentric universe, we're not using the scientific method that I just explained a few minutes ago, but we just, it's, it's obvious. We're sitting here on Earth, everything's revolving around us, we're not moving. You know, when do we see us moving? You know, we don't feel that wind blowing through us as we're hurtling through space. So there's no proof that we're moving, so we must be standing still. Similar thing with gravity. You know, everything fell because it was supposed to be there. You know, rocks were supposed to be down on the bottom of the earth. So if you took a rock up in the air and dropped it, it naturally wanted to fall back down. It wasn't gravity pulling it down. There was no such thing as gravity hadn't been, been considered yet. And the other thing that was used was that everything in the heavens was perfect. So that meant that when you were talking about motions, everything was in circles and spheres. And this even held on, this held on for a long time. Everything moving in a circle. The sphere was the great sphere of the stars, not the great cube of the stars, or hexagon, or you know, dodecahedron, or whatever. It was always circles, circles or spheres. So all the planets moved in circles. Because they're in the heavens, they're perfect. And that's the perfect shape. The circle is the perfect shape, so everything was moving in that manner. So everything moved in circles. But those are just basically two assumptions that we said that they just took for granted. And then they based everything, again, not experimenting, but just based on thought. Well, if this is the case, then how do we explain the motions of the planets? And it was all done mathematically and, again, not through experiment. So they didn't need to really observe things. They just said, here's how, he just said, here's how it is. Now, based on this, uh, astronomer of the time Ptolemy took these models, took the very earliest models, and included a new concept to explain how the planets moved in the sky. And what I'm going to talk about on the next slide is that the planets have a very unusual motion. I said that they wandered through the sky. So if I'm the planet, I'm wandering through the sky. I'm walking through the sky, right? I'm moving. I'm in a different spot now than I was before. All the stars stayed in the same spot. They might rise and set, but they all stayed in their re relative to each other. They were always in the same position. The planets, not only do they do that, they also do something else. Planets will also undergo what we call retrograde motion. So they're moving in one direction. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the planet decides to stop for a, stop for a day, turn around, go back for you know, a couple weeks, stop again, turn around, go back again. That's very difficult to explain. Why is the planet doing that? So we when we look at these models, if we say everything's centered around the Earth and everything's going around it in a circle, you wouldn't expect why is it stopping on its circle to go backwards all of a sudden. And I'll show you a good picture of that here on the next, on the next slide. But why is it going backwards? That's one of the things that the theory still has to explain. So Aristotle's and Ptolemy had to come up with a model to be able to explain why, why the planets would go backwards. And here's a sample, an example of what, what, what I mean with it. If we take a look at the diagram here, this is the planet Mars over a time period of a few months. Here's the stars of the constellation of Leo and Cancer. And if you watch, and if you observed it, on November 1st it was here. And you come back a month later, December 1st it's here. January 1st it's here. 
Okay, it's moving in one direction. It makes sense. All of a sudden you come back a month later and it's gone backwards. And in March, it went backwards again. And in April, well, it's gone back even further. So it spent a couple months going backwards through the sky relative to the stars. Normally going this way, all of a sudden it stopped, started going backwards, stopped again, started going forwards again. Why would it do this? And this is one of the things that has to be explained. When we look at the sun, we look at the moon, we look at the stars, their motions are very easy. They all just go in a nice circle. The sun never does this. Even if you measure its position relative to the stars, it always just moves in one direction. So the sun does that. The moon never goes backwards. You watch it go through the sky. It does move through the stars, I admit that. But it never goes backwards. But the planets do. The planets, not only do they move, they have this retrograde motion, so they move, but they also decide to stop moving, go the other way and come back. We've got to explain that. But they also change their brightness. So the planets might get a little bit brighter or a little bit fainter. Stars don't normally do that. Stars pretty much stay the same brightness. We'll learn about some certain types of stars, but for the basic ones that you can see with the naked eye, they don't usually change brightness that you can see. They might change the speed too. They might move faster or slower. And you see that here, you know, it's going, it's going at a reasonable clip here, and then all of a sudden at one point here it has to stop. In order to go from this way to this way, it's got to stop. So it comes to a stop in the sky for a second there and then starts going back. This is difficult to describe if the Earth's at the center. Why are they stopping? Why is that planet just stopping? Why is it going backwards? What is going on here? The little inset picture is just showing sort of a trace of that over a number of years. So if you look at it over a number of years, the loop isn't even exactly the same. It doesn't do exactly the same pattern. It actually depends completely on the orientation of the different, of the planets and the sun. So it'll do slightly different motions. Okay, so how do we explain this? This is, the, this is the original explanation. How do we explain the planet going backwards? Well, we had, there's the Earth at the center. So, Earth's at the center. We have the planet goes around, goes around the Earth, but instead of going directly around the Earth, it actually has a little circle on that orbit. So it actually goes on this orbit, around, while this whole orbit goes around the Earth. So we've added two circles. Still, it's got to be all circles because it's got to be perfect. So we've got to keep circles for right now. They'll go away later. So we have an, a circle on a circle, and that explains the motion because at one point, this planet's going to be going this way, and it is going to appear to go backwards in the sky. And part of the time, it'll appear to go forwards. So it is one method to explain how the planets move. It's a good scientific method. It's wrong, but it's a good scientific method, scientific theory, because you can make a prediction with it. You can predict where this planet will be. Okay, if this is the case and we know how fast the epicycle, as we call it, is moving along, and we know how fast the planet is spinning along the epicycle, I can tell you then two years from now that Mars is going to be right here. I can make a prediction come back two years later and find out if Mars really is right there. So again, scientific method that we just talked about comes, to, comes into play here. We can use that and make a prediction. And you could do pretty, and they could actually do pretty good. You could get pretty good observations. You could tell pretty well where the planets were going to be. Not perfect. Because it isn't exactly right. There's a couple things wrong with it. 
Most of all, the Earth's not at the center. But there's other things wrong with it too. The circles are incorrect. Not everything is not circles. But it works. And it certainly is a reasonable model when you tend to think that when you were you know, thousands of years ago, you couldn't, you couldn't imagine the Earth moving. I mean, it's something we take for granted now, but you couldn't, you don't, it isn't really, it's, not, it's not intuitively obvious to you that you're stand, you go outside that we're hurtling through around the sun at so many miles per hour and the sun's moving, the whole solar system is moving. So it's not something that is immediately obvious that we're moving. So this explained the motions of the planets. It explained that retrograde motion without changing, without moving the Earth. The problem was it, got, it gets more and more complicated. As observations got better and better, you had to make more and more refinements. One thing that was done was that the Earth being at the center actually changed a little bit. Instead of keeping the Earth at the center, they said, well, the Earth's at the center, but everything's revolving around a spot that's a little bit off-centered from the Earth. So that sort of helped make the observations a little bit more accurate. Sometimes you had to add multiple epicycles. So not only did you have Mars going, you have this circle going around Mars, but you had to have another littler epicycle going around that. You see part of the problem. Remember one of the things for a scientific theory, it's supposed to be simple. When you start adding more epicycles and start changing everything, you know, instinctively a scientist is going to start thinking there's got to be a simpler way. There has to, must be something simpler that could explain this. But this is essentially what Ptolemy came up with, and it works. You can do the calculations. You, know, you can figure out how fast each of these objects is moving. And you can calculate you know, 10 different circles if you have to. You could use 10 different epicycles on epicycles, each one with a different speed or different directions and different sizes. And imagine doing this calculation with no calculators, no computers, no nothing, you know, long before any of that. So this is all done by hand. And you could predict where the planets were going to be. It worked. But it was starting to get very cumbersome. You're looking for a simpler way to be able to do that. And what we come up with is Copernicus. It's a diagram from Copernicus and something to the effect that maybe it would be simpler, perhaps it would be simpler if, what? If the sun were at the center instead. So here we have the sun. The orbit of Mercury, orbit of Venus. Here's the Earth and the Moon. So there's the Earth and the Moon. Orbit of Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Then there's the vacuum, a stellar vacuum, in between the stars and the planets. And then the great sphere of the stars. So could this, the idea is, could this better explain the motions of the planets? Could this better explain how we see the planets move in the sky? Can this explain why the planets decide to all of a sudden turn around, keep going one direction, and decide to turn around and go the other direction? Could that explain it? And it does, because we can explain a heliocentric model without adding in these epicycles. A heliocentric model can explain retrograde motion. I'm going to show you a little animation of this. I think it's the next slide. But just in general, first here's what it does. As the Earth is going around in here, we're closer to the Sun, so we're moving faster. <coughs> so when we pass Mars, if you look at the lines here, the lines show the direction where Mars will appear to be in the sky. So right now Mars appears to be here, between 1 and 2. Okay, Mars has moved from here to here. 
between 2 and 3, still going that way. 3 and 4, still moving forward. 4 and 5, even still. As we get real close in here, when we go from 5 to 6, at 5 Mars looked like it was here, but as we overtake it, all of a sudden it looks like it's gone backwards in the sky. Similar effect if you're driving on the highway, right? You're passing a car. If you don't pay attention, if you're going at a nice smooth speed, it looks like they're going backwards. That car or truck is going backwards. They're not really, they're still going forward. So all the stars are still moving forward. It's just an, it's an optical effect because of us moving. We're passing that car and it looks like it's going backwards. We're passing Mars, it looks like it's going backwards. It's not really going backwards. It's still going forward, it just appears to be going backwards because we're overtaking it. We're going faster than it is. And we're, we're overtaking it. And again, that's a much simpler way to explain why the retrograde motion occurs instead of having an epicycle. As we started to try to understand things like gravity, it made even more sense. Because when you go back to that epicycle idea, when you think of gravity, you think of, okay, the Earth, the Moon is orbiting the Earth. The Earth's orbiting the Sun. That's how we think of it today. When you go back to that epicycle one, what was that planet orbiting? It was on a little circle that was orbiting absolutely nothing. It doesn't make common sense to us today. It certainly made mathematical sense and could work, but it just, why is, it, why is this planet orbiting around nothing? And when it got to be circle upon circle, it got even more complicated and still, why is there nothing there? Why are they not orbiting, you know, why everything's orbiting the Earth, but why is it so complicated? This simplified it greatly. For the most part, again, I said circles, right? We're still all stuck on circles here. So it turns out that Copernicus, his model, didn't do a whole lot better than the old one at first because he was still, even Copernicus was the late 1400s, he was still circles. Still everything orbited in circles. And we turned out that's not correct, so his theory didn't quite match up any, really any better. It didn't do any worse, didn't really do any better than the Ptolemy's old one. Now looking at retrograde motion, a little more detail here. I want to give you this to sort of show you what's going on. Let me start this. There we go. This is what Mars does. So here's sort of the motion you get. You watch it move. It'll stop. It'll go back. This is looking at like once a day over the period of a few months. So it moves, goes in one direction, slows down, stops, goes in the other direction relative to the stars. So if you came back at the same time every single night and looked at that, you would actually see it. You'd see it moving slowly through the stars and it would have this retrograde loop. And I want to go and show you, now that I've gotten through that, I want to show you the, let's see if I can do it from here, yeah how that worked in the explanation. So here's how Ptolemy explained it. Give this a chance to reset, but here's that epicycle. As we reset it here, come on, there we go. As the planet moves, it's normally going forward. When it comes to the inner part of that epicycle, it goes backwards and then it starts to go forward again. So as it passes on the inner part of that epicycle, then it looks like it goes backwards. So it explains the motions that we see. But still, again, the big thing is, especially for people now when you think of gravity and you think something's got to be orbiting something else, you know, there's a dot there, but there's nothing, there was nothing there. You know? This circle was orbiting the Earth, but the object on it was getting closer or further from the Earth as it moved, but it wasn't actually orbiting anything. It's going around this circle that had nothing. Now, if we look at that from the 
from Copernicus's explanation. Here's how Copernicus explained it. Again, we've got two planets. You've got the Earth here in green, and you've got Mars here in red. And as we restart it, go ahead. Okay. You watch how as we'll pass it, as we'll start moving, as we're passing it, it's going to look like it goes backwards relative to the stars. Then as we've overtaken it, it starts to go forward again. So you explain the motion. You can explain the motion very well in either, in either way. What you really needed was some, you needed a better way to predict the motions of the planets. Copernicus didn't quite do it. He was right in terms of what was at the center, that the sun was at the center, we know now. But his model didn't work any better initially to predict the positions of the planets. So it didn't tell us any more about how the planets were moving. It couldn't make any better predictions than Ptolemy did. Now what we have, let me go back out of this one. There we go. So we needed some better observations. And one of the astronomers who did that after the time of Copernicus, Copernicus actually didn't even publish his, he published his big book about this as he was dying. So he was on his deathbed as it was being published. So, which might have been a bright thing at the time if you've heard of things that happened at the time. Galileo and that, you know, he waited until it was too late for anybody to do anything for him. But this is actually an astronomer named Tycho Brahe. And he lived in about a about hundred years after Copernicus. 75, 100 years after Copernicus. And he was one of the, he was probably the last pre-telescopic astronomers. So this is before the telescope was invented in the early 1600s. And he made extremely accurate observations of the stars and the planets. So he made very detailed observations. This is an example of his observatory. So no telescope involved. But he's sitting there looking out and observing. And you could observe through the hole, see how the stars were moving, see the stars as they'd pass certain areas. You could move it to look at different areas. And a big quadrant here to be able to measure positions very accurately. And he could measure positions close to about a minute of arc. Do you remember what that was from last time? Remember we had a degree? One degree, divide that degree into 60 parts. Now, to give that a better idea, the full moon is about 30 minutes of arc. Full moon is a half a degree. So he could measure things to 1 30th the size of the full moon. That's pretty, you've got no telescopes, no other instruments. He's just looking at things. And he could measure things to about that accuracy. And that's pretty good, because that really helped us later on in terms of being able to decipher how the planets really moved. We had all these detailed observations. That's all he did. He just made observations. He really didn't do anything with the calculations or anything. But he did come up with his own model. I put a picture of that on there for you, too, just to show you. He had his own model of the universe. So we talked about Tycho's, sorry, we talked about uh, Ptolemy's. Ptolemy had the Earth at the center, everything going around the Earth. Copernicus had the Sun at the center and everything going around the Sun. Tycho had something kind of a cross between them. The Earth's still at the center. So the Earth is still the center of everything. And the Sun goes around the Earth, but everything else went around the Sun. Now why would he do that? Why is he making it more complicated? I told you how good accurate observations he could make. So he could make very accurate observations. And he knew that if the Earth was moving, that he should be able to observe parallax. 
We talked about parallax last time. So if he observed the star here and comes back six months later when the Earth is on the other side of the Sun and observes that star again, those stars should shift position. He couldn't, he couldn't observe it. He looked and he could not observe it. So that convinced him that he, you know, he'd had great faith in his measurements. So he said that means the Earth must not be moving. You know, I made measurements. I tried to see if I could detect parallax, then I'd know for sure that the Earth was moving, but I can't detect it. So therefore, the Earth has to be still. So he put the sun around the Earth, but then everything, and then everything else around the sun. And then still, the great fixed stars out there. Out there. So Tycho's observation, Tycho's, again, his model would work as well. You know, wouldn't be perfect, but it could actually predict the motions of the planets. You could explain things like retrograde motion and everything else just the same as you could on the, as you could on the, on the, on the other systems. Plus, he had the added effect that he didn't have to worry, you know, politically about it, right? He didn't have to because he's still saying the Earth's at the center. And it wasn't just a political thing for him. He's also saying, you know, I can't observe it. I, if the Earth's moving, I should be able to see a different position for these stars, and he didn't see it. So since he didn't see that, he really he kept the Earth at the center. But his observations were a very key thing for the next astronomer, Johannes Kepler, who took, who worked for Tycho, sort of his assistant, and when Tycho died, he sort of inherited all the data. So he got all the data. He was more a mathematician. He wasn't observing. He took all that data, again, long pre-computer, and analyzed it all to figure out what the planets were really doing. And he came up with three laws of planetary motion that we'll go over on the next three slides. So what did he observe? His first thing he found that the planetary orbits were not circles. Again, everyone before this, Tycho, Copernicus, Ptolemy, Aristotle, going all the way back, everything was moving in a circle. He observed the orbit of Mars very carefully from all of Tycho's observations and found out that it wasn't a circle, that it was actually an ellipse. Yeah, nice mathematical diagram of an ellipse there. But an ellipse is essentially, if you take two pins and a piece of string and you stretch that pencil and draw around, you'll draw the shape of an ellipse. So it's sort of like a flattened circle. The planetary orbits are ellipses. They're not very elliptical, only a little bit but enough that all those observations earlier that didn't take that into account were all off. Now in terms of an ellipse, you have a couple different things. We show in the diagram here, you know, the sun is no longer at the center. The sun is not at the center of the ellipse, it's at one of the foci of the ellipse. So it has a focus here and a focus here. The sun is located at one of those. And then the planets would then have a closest approach to the sun and a furthest approach. Depending on the planets, these, these ellipses can be more or less flattened. Mercury's is very, very flattened. Things like uh, Venus is almost circular. Mars is reasonably flattened, which is fortunate that he happened to look at Mars, that we could actually determine that it was an ellipse. If he'd looked at Venus instead, he might have had a lot of trouble, even with the accuracy of Tycho's data, to be able to determine that it was an ellipse. So that's his first law of planetary motion. Planetaries are, the planetary orbits are in ellipses with the sun at one focus of the ellipse. Secondly, the fun one here, 
I'll explain, I'll, I'll read it and then I'll explain it a little bit better. But Kepler's second law says that if you take an imaginary line that connects the sun and the planet, it sweeps out equal areas in equal times. Makes sense, right? What it's saying is that if you go from this point here to this point, and say that takes one month for you to go from this point in the orbit to this point in the orbit, and it takes you a month to go from here to here, and a month to go from here to here, if those times are all the same, the time it takes you to move, then this area is the same. So very geometrical calculation he had to do here. He had to determine the orbits and actually plot out where everything was and measure these areas. Again, didn't have a little computer program to calculate and say, okay, this area is so much, this area is so much. Again, done all by hand. But what does this really mean? This, this law actually can be a little bit better worded than the formal wording that I'm giving you. Really what it's telling us is when the planet is close to the sun, it's moving a lot faster. So it moves faster when it's close to the sun and slower when it's further away. So really what Kepler's second law tells you is that when an object is close to the sun, it's moving a lot faster. When an object is far away from the sun, it's moving significantly slower. So we have that. That also works for things like comets. Halley's Comet is a big one. You may have heard about it. It comes back every 76 years. It last came back in the mid-1980s, so we still got a, still got a little while to wait. It's not coming back for this class. So he's still got another 50, what, 40, 50 years, 45 years or so to wait. But Halley's Comet does the same thing, except it has a very elliptical orbit. So it goes out, it comes in close to the Earth, in towards the orbit of the Earth, but it goes out, well out to the orbits of the outer planets, Uranus and Neptune. It goes way out there. So it, this, this applies to it just as well. When Halley's Comet comes in, it comes in and it's bright and visible for you know, a year or two while it's real close to the sun and it gets heated up. But then it spends most of its life moving very, very slowly way out in the depths of space. Moving very slowly because it's very far away from the sun. It's following Kepler's second law. It's moving quick when it's close to the sun and it's moving very, very slowly when it's far away. But this orbit, this would be more elliptical than a planetary orbit but not near as elliptical as a cometary orbit. They'd be much thinner and much longer out into, out into space. So Kepler's first law was everything is an ellipse. Kepler's second law, again, that's the formal definition, but Kepler's second law really says that things move faster when they're closer to the sun and slower when they're further away. Then finally, the big math one. Kepler's third law. You don't need to, you don't need to copy down the table. It's from your textbook anyway. The table is just to demonstrate how it works. But Kepler's Kepler's third law says that the square of a period of the planet's orbital motion is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis. Okay, let's try that again. The square of the period of the planet's orbit. So how long does it take this planet to orbit the sun? Let's look at the Earth. The Earth takes one year. Okay, Earth takes one year to go around the sun. If we square that, one times one is one, right? That way it's telling us that that's going to be exactly the same as the cube of the average distance. The semi-major axis is just how far away on average the planet is from the Sun. So if we cube that, the Earth, remember we defined that last time, one astronomical unit. That's the average distance from the Earth to the Sun. So the Earth's numbers come out real easy. One squared is one, one cubed is one, so they're the same. 
Now you don't need to do it for all the other planets. It's already been done here for the t in the table for you. Where A has been cubed, P has been squared, and we divide them. And we find out that everything, 1.002, you know, to within rounding errors for the most part, it's correct. That the square of the period, there's a relationship between how far a planet is away from the sun and how fast it's moving. And that's what Kepler found in his third law. Now Newton takes this law and modifies it a little bit. And actually we'll find that we'll come back to, we'll be talking about Kepler's third law at the end of the class still. Because Kepler's third law, when it's been modified by Newton, actually allows us, when we measure orbits, when we measure periods, how long something takes to orbit something else, how far it is away from that object, we can determine the mass of any object. So when Newton does it through gravity, and we'll look at that in a little later, you can actually use this third law to determine the masses of stars, the masses of galaxies and galaxy clusters. As they're moving, we can determine, if we can determine their orbits, we can determine their mass. That's our only good way to get masses in astronomy. We can't go out there with a scale and put the sun on a scale and see how much, how much is it, you know, how much matter is there there. This is our way to get masses. Otherwise, it is very, very difficult to figure out how much mass there is in a star. We need something to get a direct measurement, and this is the only way, to, only way we have to do it. Put something in order. It doesn't matter. If we had the capability, we could send a spaceship to the star and measure its orbital parameters and get, the, get, it, just as, get it just as well. Of course, the problem is getting a spaceship to the nearest star. So those are Kepler's three, Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. Now at the same time, oops, wait, sorry, distances first. So we're doing distances. Dimensions of the solar system. How big is the solar system? That was something we did not have a good handle on under the geocentric theory. It was not easy to tell how big things were. Under, the, under Kepler's model, we could determine how far away everything was from the sun relative to the Earth. So we had a general scale of the solar system, but we couldn't figure out exact distances. Because you can easily measure the period, right? We measured that the Earth takes one year to go around. We could measure that Venus takes 200 and some days. We could measure that Mars and Jupiter, how long, how many years they take to go around the sun. We can measure those. If we measure the period, that's easy to get. Then we can figure out how far they are away, again, relative to the Earth. So it doesn't tell us how many miles they are away, but it tells us sort of a scale for the solar system. That maybe Venus is 0.7 times as far away from the sun as we are. And once we can figure out that number, then we have the entire dimensions of the, the entire dimensions of the solar system. And that's a hard, again, a hard thing to get is distances. There's no great big tape measure to take out and drag a tape measure to Venus. Okay, how far away are you? You can't do it. But we could get the relative scales. We could say that Earth was one astronomical unit, Mars was one and a half times further away, Jupiter is a little over five times, Saturn's close to 10, Uranus 20, Neptune 30. We could at least get relative distances. But it wasn't until very recently, as in 60, 70, 50, 60, 70 years now, that we could actually figure out easily the actual number. How many miles is it from the Earth to the Sun? There are ways of trying to get it geometrically, but nothing very accurate. Once radar was developed, well then we got it very easily because we could bounce a radar signal off Venus, time how long it took to come back. So when Venus was at its closest approach, we could say, okay, Venus is so far away from the Earth, it's 0.3 astronomical units, but we could actually measure that in kilometers because we bounced the signal off 
Radi radar signal travels at the speed of light. We know how fast it's going. We know how long it takes to get there and back. So we could figure out the distance. Once we figured out what one astronomical unit was, then we had the whole size of the solar system. But it wasn't until relatively recently, even for all the stuff we're talking about right now, that we were able to figure that. And again, that was done by taking Venus, bouncing a radar signal off it, and watching that signal to come back. Now you may think, why not bounce a radar signal off the sun and just get it directly? Just send a radar signal to the sun and get one astronomical unit. Big problem is that the sun's a big ball of gas. It doesn't have a solid surface. So there's nothing to bounce a radar signal off. It'll go there, but you won't get a signal back. So Venus has, a, it has an atmosphere, but it still has a solid surface for things to bounce off of to get back. So you sort of have to do it an indirect method this way. You can't just bounce a radar signal off the sun. Plus, the sun is actually very noisy in radio waves. So if you turn a radio telescope to the sun, it's got a lot of noise that it's emitting radio waves itself. So it makes it very difficult to do this. Venus doesn't have that, have that problem. Okay, now on. At the same time as Kepler, Galileo was around. And Galileo made some observations. He was the one, he didn't, didn't invent the telescope. Telescope was invented before Galileo, but Galileo was one of the first to have the idea to turn it to the sky and record his observations. So his observations have actually been recorded. And he turned it to the sky and looked at, all the, and looked at these different objects. You know, he was interested in looking at the moon, the different planets. And what he found, I think your book only gives you about four of these. I've added a couple more because there's a few other things that he discovered. I think I asked you in a homework question for five of them, and there's only four in the book. So I've actually given you six now, so you've got a few choices. But one thing he found when he looked at the moon, if you just look at the moon, you see it has some features to it, but you really can't see the mountains, the valleys, the distinct craters that you can see when you look at it, even through a very small telescope. And his telescopes weren't very big, you know, a few, few centimeters across at his biggest ones earliest ones, doesn't take very much to be able to see that. But he was able to see that the moon was imperfect. So why is that such a big deal? It's a big rock, right? Remember, everything in the heavens was supposed to be perfect. So the moon was in the heavens. It should have been perfect just like everything else. Everything moved in circles. Everything was perfect. The moon wasn't. Okay, we can write off the moon. The moon's too close to the Earth. It's gotten corrupted by the corrupting influences of the Earth, and therefore that's why it's got all this junk on it and ignore the Earth. But then we go to the next one. The sun has spots on it too. Question? Yes, sir. Sorry. It says rings of Saturn. Now, Saturn is the only planet that has rings around it, isn't it? No. No. Actually, all four, of the, all four of the outer planets have rings. Saturn's the only one that has ones you can easily see with a telescope. If you look at, yeah, I mean, if you, go, if you go look at the other planets through a telescope, you're not going to see their rings. But yeah, he, he did sort of, and I should have put a question mark there, sort of the rings of Saturn. Yeah, that's okay. But the sun, the sun has imperfections. So we see spots on the sun. We see a lot of them right now, actually. If you can look at, if you get a chance to look at a projection of the sun, don't go staring at it. Hurt your eyes. But... You can look at it, and he could project it. You know, he didn't have to look at it through the telescope. I don't think even Galileo would have tried looking through the telescope at the sun, because that, really, that would really be painful. But it has imperfections. But you can project it through a telescope. You can point a telescope at the sun and let it project it on the street or on a piece of paper, and you can look at, look at that. But it had imperfections. And it moved, too. You could watch those little imperfections called sunspots. We'll talk about those in a couple of weeks. And we watched the move, meaning that the sun was actually rotating. 
So the sun wasn't perfect either. So even the sun, which was, you know, the thing that gives us all of our light and energy, wasn't perfect out in the heavens. So something, again, something is different. Something is, something is different there. Next, he looked at Jupiter. This was a big one. Jupiter had moons. It had three little stars, or should I say stars at the time. He didn't know the difference, but he saw three objects that were orbiting around Jupiter. And he could watch them. You know, you'd come back an hour later or two and they'd move and it was very clear that they were orbiting around Jupiter. This is one of the two key ones of his observations because these are sort of, you know, they're interesting, yeah, okay, the heavens aren't perfect. So maybe there's some slight imperfections, you know, we can get away with that. But here is evidence of something orbiting that is not orbiting the Earth. Those moons were very clearly only going around Jupiter. So maybe Jupiter was orbiting the Earth, but then if Jupiter is orbiting the Earth, why are these moons orbiting Jupiter? Why is something orbiting Jupiter? So that was one of his key discoveries that showed that there, were, that there was some, some evidence for putting the sun, at the, center of the sun at the center of the solar system. And also that if Jupiter could move and have things that followed it around in its orbit, then why couldn't the Earth move as well? And have the moon still stay with it. The biggest of them, right here in the middle, Venus. When you look at Venus, through a telescope, it has phases. That means that it goes through phases just like the moon. That, that's the big key. That, that, that killed the geocentric theory, that observation right there. There is no way under the geocentric theory that Venus would ever show phases. It, well, it would show phases, but it wouldn't show the complete cycle of phases. Under the geocentric phase, Venus should always look like a crescent. It didn't here. It did not look like a crescent phase. You saw a full phase, and you saw a crescent phase, and you saw gibbous phases, and you saw quarter phases. You saw the whole range of phases of Venus. And you never should have seen that under the geocentric theory. And I'm going to show you another diagram of that in just a moment. The last two, again, rings of Saturn. You mentioned he almost discovered the rings of Saturn. He could see that there was something there. But to him, it looked like the planet with two big blobs on the side. And sometimes those blobs were there. But if you observed it five or ten years later, those blobs might be gone. It'll look like two big satellites. And then you come back five or ten years after that and they're back again. He couldn't, he didn't quite have a big enough telescope to distinguish what they were. But he could see that there was something, there was something odd about Saturn. It was a big planet there and there were two big blobs on either side sometimes. And sometimes they go away. And finally, he observed stars in the Milky Way. If you look at the Milky Way, if you've ever been out to a real dark site and seen the Milky Way, you can see a big milky, milky band across there. It just looks like a big milky band. You can't see individual stars. If you put a telescope there, you can actually see the stars. You can see that there are individual stars there. Now why is that such a big deal? Well, again, the heavens were supposed to be unchangeable and constant. And according to Aristotle, there were a fixed number of stars. You could count the number of stars in the, number of stars in the, in the universe and you'd know exactly how many there were, and it was not changing. Well, Galileo, with one turn of his telescope, just you know, tripled and quadrupled and quintupled and more how many stars there were in the universe. He found all sorts more, just by, looking, just by using a telescope, just by magnifying things and expanding things a little bit. So they were all you know, contradiction to the general belief at the time, and that's one of the things that got Galileo into, into problems. Now here's the diagram I promised of the phases of Venus. And I said, this is what you should see. So if you were in a in Ptolemy's model, 
you should go through a cycle of crescent phases. So you should go through, you're between the earth, always between the Earth and the Sun, so you'd go through a crescent phase, and it would get bigger and bigger, and then it would get smaller and smaller, and then again bigger, but it would always be a crescent. So, good scientific theory, it made a prediction. When we go look at Venus, if we can see it, it should, always look, it should look always a crescent phase. Under the heliocentric theory, it's not. That's not what we see. What we see in the heliocentric phase is that you get that crescent phase, but you also can get a full phase. You can, get, you can be on the other side of the sun from the heliocentric theory. And that's what Galileo saw. Galileo saw that you could get the entire cycle of phases, and that's something that was sort of, that, that, killed the, that killed the geocentric theory. There's no way that can work. It does not predict, it makes a prediction that is not found out by facts, so we found, we found an observation that disproves the geocentric theory. So that gives us big evidence for the heliocentric theory, putting the sun at the center. And again, that's where Galileo got into his problems, not that just that he found that, but sort of the way he promoted it, and there were certain issues with the way he promoted it for the church at the time that caused him issues that he was put under house arrest pretty much until he died. So he was kept under house arrest and forced to you know, recant his theories at the time. But we found out now, you know, further observations confirmed everything that it is correct. The sun is at the center. And then to finish up here, I've got one more on Galileo. And Galileo also was an observer. observer. He also studied. He was a scientist who actually did observations. And one of the things that he came up with, and you probably heard, right, Galileo and the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? Drop the two balls that fall at the same time, you know, a wooden ball and a metal ball, and they fall at the same time. Well, the clip I'm going to show you here is that experiment done from the moon. So when you're actually on the moon, it doesn't work on the Earth, right? If I take you know, a heavy ball and a light ball, the heavy one falls faster, right? I drop a piece of paper or a feather and a hammer, as this gentleman's going to do in a minute, it happens, they don't fall at the same time. The paper sort of flutters down to the ground, and the hammer falls straight down. Well, that's because you've got an atmosphere here. You've got to get rid of the atmosphere. On the moon, when the astronauts were on the moon, we didn't have that disadvantage. So you actually had an atmosphere, and let's hope it'll play this time. Come on. Well, maybe not. Played this morning when I came in and tried it. Oh, well. Um, let's see if I can get out of there and get it to play now. Well, if not, I'll play it first thing. I have a copy of it. If I can get in, let me see if I can get into the regular copy and I'll just. Come on. Let me get out and back in real quick, and we should have five a minute to play it. Ah, you know what? I'll go ahead and play it next time, since we are. I've got quarter after right now, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I'll play that for you next. I'll play it for you next time. I have a copy of it in my folder too, but. So if you have the extra credit assignment, if you haven't emailed it, you're still going to make sure I get that by the end of the day.